I had to get out of North Carolina and I came to Florida and three degrees later, you know, here I am a proud alumni of, of Florida many times over and was pretty fortunate to be there during all of those national championships, you know, in the 2000s on basketball and football and gymnastics and swimming and track and field. So Wait, three degrees later, did you say? Welcome to the Art of Success podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Bozinski, and I'm excited to be interviewing personalities from all different backgrounds on how they've learned and earned success. Our goal is that the stories would equip you to achieve success both personally and professionally. Please note that there may be explicit words or conversational topics in this podcast. So if you're underage or listening with a child, please be aware of this. Lastly, please note that all the views, beliefs, and opinions are not always a reflection of the hosts. Okay, let's jump in. Well, Ed Buckley, welcome to The Art of Success. Thank you for having me. I've been excited to have this conversation. It's a a long time coming, man. Like, really, uh, we met each other, what, probably a year and a half or two years ago at a speaking engagement I had in California. And sure enough, I reached back out and you're still crushing it, man. It's always a good thing to still be in business and, you know, not just being stagnant, but growing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped. You know, uh, it's, it's always good to reconnect and, and everybody doing well. And, and I think today we're going to have a really fun time. Well, I'm, I'm excited because I, I do believe that as a young entrepreneur, it's, it's, it's inspiring for others, no matter what your age is to know that you can, you can have a dream, you can have an idea and you can turn it into a reality. And I love even just when I got to meet you at first, just the progression of uh, how you've gotten to where you've gotten. So why don't you just give us a little bit of context to start off kind of what you're doing in your life and in business? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, really the essence of what I've always been passionate about and I've been able to turn it into a career, thank heavens, is about connecting people together and people with physical activity. And whether it was you know, in grad school, being a group fitness instructor, or all the way back, I can remember when I was first old enough to go to the, the gym by myself, I always would drag friends to the gym with me, because um, I always thought people should do it together. And so, you know, while academically, I was able to study, you know, people's behavior around physical activity and, and healthcare policy, and, and kind of blending that all together was the creation of PeerFit, which, in, in a simple sense of what we do is, we help connect employers and insurance carriers with great fitness experiences. So, you know, a lot of times people are doing big box gym subsidies and you have to fill out paperwork or, you know, you have to get 12 month contracts. We think all of that's just cumbersome and outdated. And we just allow the insurance company and the employers to send, you know, their members and their employees around to any different studios and gyms they want to. And they get to hop around between all of them with their friends, family, and coworkers without ever having to fill out any reimbursement. That's really cool, man. That's awesome. And then tell us about kind of where you're at, what you're, where you're living, kind of a little bit of your personal life as well. Yeah. Um, I live in Tampa, Florida. Well, I should say I reside there. I'm pretty much never there because I'm always <laughs> on the road uh, today. For instance, I'm not there. But yeah, I live in Tampa. I live right downtown. And you know, there, there's a city right there that has been poised for great growth. Uh, Jeff Finnick came into the city a little less than a decade ago, he is the owner of the Tampa Bay Lightning, and and him and Bill Gates uh, Fund has come in and transformed you know that city. And so to be right in the center of it, watching all of this growth and innovation has has been inspiring for me. Uh, you know, personally speaking, I'm always on the road for work, and when I'm not, I get to 
be home with my friends where I, I work out with them all the time. That's one of my favorite things to do is go to different group fitness classes with, uh, with my friends. Well, it's so funny that you even, so whatever there's great companies, they're solving great problems, right? And I think about often the times when I've had larger teams that I had working with me, uh, how they would always say like, we need to have a gym in the office so that we can stay here one long, one hour longer and just, and still feel like we're able to be physically fit also. So I think that you you are solving a major problem with employees, uh, employers, and even just the physical fitness. I'm sure that just from a mental health standpoint, there's got to be so much more that you guys do as well. But we'll get into that maybe in a few here. Um, I just love laying a little bit of context. So tell us about your upbringing, like the family life. Were you always born and raised in Tampa? Uh, what are you learning kind of take away from uh, your upbringing that's gotten you to, to where you're at today? Sure. It would probably be surprising to note as I hopefully obvious I'm a talkative person and I'm pretty passionate and loud. I'm one of the <laughs> quietest people in my own family, uh, simply because all my family are a bunch of talkers. So uh, my dad was a Navy pilot, which means we moved all the time. And I think that was one of the greatest things for me personally. Uh, while it's tough as a child, you know, I, I remember being a lot harder on my sisters. But, you know, every two years, having to uproot yourself and get a whole new group of friends, I think is what made me the person I am today. I think that's why it's so easy for me to go meet anyone, talk to them and try to connect and, you know, become friends as easily as possible. So yeah, my, my dad was a Navy pilot. Um, I have, uh, was always interested. I actually wanted to be an astronaut as a kid. I used to oh build gosh. like space, space stations instead of building tents. Um, you know, I skipped school at, you know, 11 one time to go ask Neil Armstrong a question at a symposium with uh, <laughs> with a bunch of you know, retired Navy people. So um, I, I, I suppose I've always been a very curious and talkative person. And, you know, I graduated high school in North Carolina, had a scholarship to go to Chapel Hill, NC State or University of Florida. And while everyone always says, why didn't you go to Chapel Hill? I, I had to get out of North Carolina and I came to Florida and three degrees later, you know, here I am, a proud alumni of, of Florida many times over and was pretty fortunate to be there during all of those national championships, you know, in the 2000s on basketball and football and gymnastics and swimming and track and field. So Wait, three degrees uh, later, you know, did you say? Uh, yes, three degrees. So I have three degrees from the University <laughs> of Florida. Um, the first one is, is public relations, and I focused all my research on um, at the time, this new trend of worksite wellness and the communications around Fortune 500 companies and what they were, you know, telling people about worksite wellness. And that led me to start my first company, which basically built kind of innovative new worksite wellness programs. And uh, it, it gave me enough money that I was able to go to grad school. And that's where I studied public health policy during the time that the uh, ACA, Obamacare, was getting passed. And, and while probably public health policy isn't fun to anyone, it was a pretty fun time to be studying it, that's for sure. Right. And, and really, my master's thesis was on the idea of peer fit. And that's what got me a scholarship to do my PhD. And I focused on digital health and behavior. So I always tell everyone what we studied was how can I manipulate you through your phone to do <laughs> healthy activities? And and here we are today, right? So Right, right. Man, that's super cool. So should we be calling you like Dr. Ed or what? Like <laughs> <laughs> No, no. Ed is Ed is fine. Absolutely. I sound way too stuffy and formal. I already have a pretty long name because I'm 
Edward John Buckley III. So when you put doctor in front of it, I sound like an 80-year-old, um, you know, professor, which well, I am definitely not. Well, you, well you've, earned, you've earned the title. I mean, gosh, you're so, you've been so busy doing so many things. I think that it is interesting how that, that upbringing piece had to have played into so many types of your personality and your drive and your willingness to adapt to new environments. Um, so tell me though, like as you, you've grown and we're going to kind of get into peer fit here in a minute, uh, how, how have you defined success? I'm, I'm really curious about this personally and professionally because you don't just go and get three degrees like on accident. Like, like, did you have a plan? Like, tell us, cause like, like, how do you define success in these areas and how did you kind of, yeah, get to where you're like to do sure. all these things? I love being a student. And I know sometimes people who stay in school love being a student, meaning that they just don't want to go work. I'm obsessed with learning. And, and I also don't do well if I don't have a lot of things on my plate. I am, I am at my best when I am on the verge of just being overworked. That's really <laughs> kind of just my sweet spot. And so you have to think these three degrees were also when I had one or two startups. There were times when I was in grad school and had two startups. That's what I was going to ask at you. The same yeah, time. keep going. Yep, and, and and working at uh, you know teaching group fitness classes. So <laughs> so typically you know I was having four jobs at the same time, but sitting in classes would give me ideas to bring back to you know my startup. Or while I was teaching classes, I would think about things or you know hear input from my you know students who'd come to my class, which would you know I'd bring back to you know one of my other startups again. So I, I don't do well, not doing things. Um, probably one of my most torturous times is I'm sitting at home and I have nothing to do. So I don't (laughs) like sitting around watching television. I literally don't watch TV. Um, and, and that's why I am the best when I'm out on the road for PeerFit because it, it kind of takes up enough of my bandwidth where it allows me to focus on, you know, my, my work and, and gets me out and about talking to new people. I do really well when, when I'm talking to new people, getting new ideas from them. You know, I, I don't like status quo at all. As you probably might assume as someone who does startups, I, I really love new, improving, constantly looking for uh, ways to get better, both personally and everything system that I look at. I'm, I'm a big systems thinker. Um, so I, cool. I heard, you know, I heard a story one time that I could relate to, and I, I heard the story about when Steve Jobs was in the hospital towards the end of his his time. You know, he's doing a lot more doctor's visits, and there's someone who's a disruptor, systems thinker, and all he could do because he was so bored there was he was nitpicking all of the different instruments in the hospital and said, oh, this should work this way. And you, you guys should do it this way. And, <laughs> and was just picking apart. And I'm like, there, yep, I, I could, I could imagine that if I was ever retired or in a situation like that, that's exactly what I would be doing. It's so, a, the trade I can't turn off. You're killing me. Like this is exactly how I am in, in many ways. And it's, it's very funny how people are like, well, you just have to slow down. And, and as if it's like a choice, you know what I mean? Like, Right. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> I don't get it. It's not a choice. It's well, just it's, it's what energizes you know, if you've us. Ever met, yeah, if you've ever met a professional athlete and then you meet them off the field and you're like, wow, that person's intense. I wish they could turn that off when they leave the field. And you're like, uh, that's how they became a pro athlete. They're hyper obsessed, competitive and intense. And that's all the time. 
That's yep. it just happened to be work out really well on part of their life when they're on the field, but probably not so great when they're off the field. It's funny too. I'm, I'm listening to the autobiography right now of Steve Jobs, which I do highly recommend it. It's 28 hours on Audible, um, but it's incredible. Oh, it's yeah. Just just how they, uh, when you listen to that guy's life, how inspiring it is, uh, how, how you can accomplish something uh, by having a vision. So, But I, I want to go back to that question. Tell me about how you define success. Did you do that earlier on in your life? Did you ever sit down and, and whatever it may be, meditate or think or write down, like, this is what I want to see in my life personally and professionally. And did that like, tell us, have you ever done that? Yeah. To some extent, I, I think that you should constantly evolve what your definition of success is. Um, if on one side of the spectrum is a politician who, if they have ever said something publicly, they're just not allowed to change their mind on it. You know, I think for the average non-politician, you should reevaluate what success is. Maybe you've learned that you don't want something more, or maybe you, you realize you, you shot too low and you need to you know readjust higher. For me, I always knew as a kid, I can remember conversations I would have with my mom as a kid, and I would tell her exactly what I'm going to do and by what age I was going to accomplish things. It's always very goal oriented. And um, I That's always cool. knew that I wanted to make an impact in people's lives. I knew that education would be a big player in that, but not to live on your degrees as if just having a degree was somehow going to make you important or impactful. Um, and so I knew it would be a combination of helping people, bringing people together, learning a very, you know, special skill set and, and having a great quality education. Um, you know, for the longest time, like I went from wanting to be an astronaut to uh, I thought I was going to, you know, go towards the medical route. And while I'm in the health space, I'm certainly not in the medical realm at all. But I've always had an interest in, in health and, and medicine and the impact uh, because we all experience that. You know, mm -hmm. that's something that you can help touch every single person. If you, you know, get a degree in Spanish, okay, there's only so many people that you can probably help with that, you know, degree. And, and early well on, I actually was studying more hard science. And what I wanted to do was I said, listen, I, I understood a lot of that, right? The, the kind of math chemistry that, that you take. I said, but those soft skills about communications, writing and doing research, those were skills that I'd be able to translate regardless of what field I went to. And that's actually what kind of led me to land on that degree at the University of Florida was everyone thinks public relations is, you know, something they see on TV where it's like a spokesman or spokeswoman. And it really is the research and kind of formal writing that yeah, goes like into that. communications. And I, and I knew that that would serve me well no matter where I ended up. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I would challenge people Success isn't necessarily going and running and doing what you love doing or what you're best at. Those are good, but you need to go find the skills that you don't have and figure out how that uh, you can shore those up, at least so they're not a liability. You're never going to be great at the things you're terrible at, but at least, you know, be competent enough so that they're not a liability. I like the the principle that you're talking about right now is is pretty strong, too. I mean, the, the fact that you wanted to be an astronaut, and, and I think some for most people, they define success by achieving this thing, and, and then ultimately halfway into that journey, they discover this isn't what they want to do, but because they made the commitment, they're unwilling to make adjustments. And so I yeah. love that, that principle you talked about is kind of revisiting that drawing board, uh, remaking these bold, audacious vision statements out loud, but then being willing to 
kind of retract on some of them so that you can focus on what, what, where the energy is taking you. Because I, I'm really big on what are you feeling? What are your emotions? What energizes you and letting that take you to where it needs to take you. Um, so that, that's, I, I really like that. T- tell me a little bit about your travel really quick too. You talked about going all these places. Do you have your team setting you up on new meetings and new presentations with companies? Is that kind of the gist of what your travel consists of? Yeah, you know, uh, there's, I would say, a handful of things that I'm always out doing. Uh, one is just seeing our people out in the field, whether it's our sales teams and exactly what you articulated, meeting new clients, talking to new potential partners, kind of help push those over the goal line. Uh, there's a component of being a tech company of fundraising. So going out and always seeing investors, whether, you know, you're fundraising or not, it's always good to, you know, keep relationships up. Um, and, and lastly, some is just connecting with our team. We have a completely remote team. And so, you know, just traveling to a pod where we've got some employees, spending time with them. I mean, I love being remote, but at the same time, you, you almost have to schedule to make sure that, you know, me as the CEO, that everybody gets to have access to, yeah. to some of our time together. And that I'm, I'm able to help build relationships, with, you know, not just with our C-suite, but everyone all, all the way through the organization. It's important to me. I know some people, you know, have different philosophies of, of leadership and, and the way that you should act, but for me, um, we're still small enough. We're you know just over sixty people that I get to get some face time with people throughout the organization as, as much as possible. That's cool. And it helps once again. It goes back to I learn as much uh, as they hopefully do from me in those meetings. Of I get to hear input from you know uh, a client service person who's talking to clients every single day. You can't once again. You can't rest on your laurels, and you can't be afraid to say, "Oh, well, the direction we were in needs to be pivoted a little bit." That's good. And you're never going to hear that if the only way you're gathering information is either looking at a KPI dashboard or hearing what your C-suite and VPs are telling you. You just have to get <laughs> out there and and really talk to the people and and gather ideas from them because that's where your best ideas are going to come from. It's not going to come from some boardroom. It's going to come from the people that are in the front line saying. Hey, I do this process every day, and I bet it'd be a lot better if we just did this. Uh, well uh, that's said. something you know. Reading Richard Branson's book, he he talks about that. Is generally the the front lines people are the ones who are going to tell them the small adjustments that they need to make, rather than dreaming it up. You know, with the, the head of marketing. Oh, let's let's run this campaign. You know, right, right. It, really it's all well academic said. At that point. Man, you had a one liner in there that was like the most articulate way to describe like the sweet, you know, the the sea level to going into the field. That that's that's so well said. And hey, man, great job fighting for uh, that personal connection. You you definitely just your personality and, and and I would even go back down to more of the nature of who you are. Is you're very much a movement guy. Uh, like you, you could lead a movement of millions of people towards something. And that's what's happening. I think through your company is because you care, like you care about every little piece and every single person. And so, so tell us, uh, let's jump into peer fit as a startup company. I mean, you've accomplished so much and, and I don't want to say so fast because for, for someone like yourself, I mean, you're in and day in day out. And so it, it feels so long, but I would say relatively to the success, you've done some pretty remarkable things. Um, you definitely practice what you preach. You've got 70% of your workforce female. Like, tell us a little bit about like the company and how you feel like you've been able to accomplish all of these great things and have such diversity on your teams and everything. Yeah, look, 
I am blessed. I'm fortunate with just an abundance of great people. And the way that this team has been built on day one was finding people that we knew we could trust um, that had some sort of a connection to us because the worst thing that you can do early in a company when you have, you know, five and 10 people is one bad hire can derail your entire company. Um, and so for us, it was going out and finding people that had good skill set, but really just finding hungry, motivated uh, people that, that, like I said, were within a degree of separation. And, and I've always tried to build my network and always talk to people. So that was pretty easy for us. And I think the first 30 hires almost all came from people that worked with people that were at PeerFit. So, you know, when we had 15 people, the next 15 were all people that had worked with the original 15 at PeerFit. Oh, and cool. so there was a lot of, there was a lot of, I think within that first 30, it was something like 25 had all worked together at a previous company. And so there were like three company logos that were above PeerFit that we kept making jokes about <laughs> were all of our parent companies because they just transitioned over to, to, to PeerFit. Look, I was raised pretty much by uh, my mom and my sisters. Uh, my dad being a Navy pilot gets deployed for a year at a time across the world. My little brother's 15 years younger than me. So for 15 wow. years of my life, it was basically my mother and my sisters raising me. And so I've always been incredibly comfortable um, having strong, uh, you know, female figures around me and almost to a point of, I, I came to expect that. And I, you know, beyond what, what I think about, you know, the workforce and how we should treat everyone equally and, and pay people equally and all of that, uh, you know, we, we've tried to build a workforce that is open to anyone and everyone. I don't care what your background is, what your philosophy are, you know, is on things. We want you, if you're a good person and you're, you know, energetic and passionate about our mission to redefine wellness, we want you, you know, there at PeerFit. And it just That's so cool. happens. I suppose that that is rare these days, which is pretty a sad state to hear. Um, but yes, our, you know, a tech company, which you typically think of a lot of male programmers, you know, uh, <laughs> developers. And, and for us, you know, well over half of our company is, is female, which is a fantastic thing. We just won an award for one of the best, you know, um, places there for, for female employees. And, and I think, I think just in general, diversity happens because everyone cares about everyone. There is no agenda other than just we want people that are good. We want people that, that, that once again, care about our cause. And um, that's, that's what we've tried to build at PeerFit. And, you know, it, it's great for us that a lot of people said, well, when you go from 10 to 20, you won't be able to keep, you know, such a great culture. And they said that all the way up from 20 to 30, 30 to 40. And here we are over 60 people still winning awards on our culture. It, on. it is my single most important thing that, that, you know, I care about is, is our culture. And I can assure you that in any company, if the CEO cares about something, everyone else cares about something. Right, so right. it is, it is very important to me that we have a fantastic culture that uh, people care about each other, but also to our point we were talking about earlier, that people can help each other, call each other out, you know, change opinions on things. Uh, you know, there is no Absolutely. such thing as good or bad. It's just effective and ineffective. That's the way that I look yeah, at it. That's well said. It takes the emotions out of it. And um, I remember when we were talking before, you were telling me about how, I mean, you have attracted some pretty amazing all-star team members, right? And 
I always think it's interesting how the human resource departments of companies are the most valuable and important departments because human resources, people are the best. The, people do business with people, not products, right? And so, yeah. but, but the interesting thing to me is how you convince these individuals to leave secure jobs and go to a start a startup right it's not saying that you your company's not secure it's just saying uh, how, how do you let's talk a little bit about that for a moment how do you generate enough excitement and energy to get people to actually make the change but then stay so uh, something i always tell everyone is you have to be authentically passionate and this lends its way into getting your first earliest employees and clients if you are not authentically passionate, no one is going to line up behind you. Um, and and once again, w when you're talking to that client, you it's going to be their first client, and you've got to convince them to trust you and to do a deal with you. It's kind of the same thing as getting key employees. I mean, after the first 20 or so employees, I wasn't really involved in hiring except for senior level people. And that's really the ones that I always get involved are my C-suite and, and VPs. And our C-suite is, I mean, as I just mentioned, they won national awards on best leadership team, best management team, one of the best places to work. We are really, really fortunate with the team around us. We've got people who were former senior vice presidents, you know, from Aetna. We've got someone who's the CFO, oh uh, Tina, our CFO, who just won CFO of the year in Tampa. And she was the CFO for um, a tech company that sold for $250 million. So I think what it all came down to was, we had people that were at secure jobs making a lot of money, but they knew that they wanted more than just a job. They wanted a purpose again. And, you know, after you go and kind of get grinded through the machine, you know, for enough years, <laughs> all of a sudden seeing, seeing a high potential company that they bought into the mission that I was, uh, you know, luckily able to, you know, make them contagious with my, my passion over what we were trying to do was, really what you know sold them and no no one that we ever hired was someone we just you know put out a rec for and, and went through that process it was generally we got on the same page we brought them in as an advisor we worked for months made sure it was a good fit and then brought them on i mean that's what we did with todd and adam our chief growth and coo and jason who we just brought on as our chief strategy was an investor long ago, then turned advisor. And then finally we brought him on to, you know, the org chart and the team. So cool. it is all, once again, about protecting our culture. Rarely do we bring someone in a senior level who we haven't been able to work with in some capacity. So you're not moving fast for these moves. I like that. That's one of the things I'm taking away is that any higher moves, you're not, you're not in a rush. Like it's, it's relational, it's organic. You're really eating your own dog yep. food like that. <laughs> Absolutely. We're always, Chris Patton, who's our VP of Wellness Solutions, he has this great philosophy of always be interviewing. So by the time you need a role, you've already done 90% of the interviews and you say, oh, you know what? I kept up with this person because I like them. You know, they've been following us on Facebook and LinkedIn. They know what's going on. And that's actually one of the best kind of trial ways is if you interview someone and you really like them, but there's just not a fit for them at that time, 
the ones that really want to work there are going to stay connected. They're going to message you. They're going to like your post. And by the time you go to talk to them, they're like, oh, I, I've, I've kept up on everything. I know everything that you guys have been up to. So That's cool. Um, you know, I, that always impresses me when, when that happens. Once again, we want to hire people that want to be here and are passionate about our mission, not just someone who is really strong in you know, their skill set. So I, I was listening to a speech earlier from Jack Welsh, right, the former CEO from GE, yep. and he talked about there are people that have good, you know, kind of moral character and are aligned with the, the vision and the purpose, and then there's the ones that have good skill set, and obviously the ones that have both rock stars, the one that have neither, get rid of them. Yep. And he said the thing that kills companies more than ever is people that are great on their skill set, but they just refuse to live the company mission because they're hitting all their goals, they're hitting all their milestones, but they just refuse to play ball and they're just wow, that's good. And keeping those they people make it hard around to work with, is what right? will kill your company. Yeah, yeah, they'll kill your company. And promoting someone like that will do more to kill your culture than, you know, any bad speech or misstep that you can make. So, so speak to someone right you know, now speak to someone right now who may have someone that's unhealthy in their organization. What do you tell them to do? Like, cause you're you're hitting something strong right now, which I really do believe. What do you give them advice to do? Someone yeah. who's unhealthy, that's fulfilling a role, what do they do? Well, I, I think you have to immediately make the decision of how you exit that person out. And you've got to triage a few things, right? You're, you have to triage the deficit of them from a inbound perspective. All of those deals they're closing, you know, the clients that that person has talked to. And then at the same time, you've got to put in a place to triage your current people who have been exposed to those toxic ways. And, and I think you'll, you'll actually do really well of when you get that person out and you articulate what your expectations are That's from a awesome. culture perspective, but it, it, it'll do more. That action of getting rid of that toxic person will do more for your existing culture than any speech you could ever give. Yeah. It will show your team how important culture is and that you understand that you value them in the culture above closing deals. So then would you actually go, and this is pretty powerful just so you know, so thanks for even sharing your process on it mentally, but like, will you then go and, and I like your word triage, the health word for that. Will you go and then maybe sit mm -hmm. down with some of those team members or do a call with them and say, hey, I just want to make you aware that uh, you might've had some interactions and uh, we had make th made this yeah. decision based on the safety and care for our employees like yourself. And, and do you ever do like kind of clean up in a sense? Yeah. Look, I believe on falling on the sword first. I tell everybody. That's good. I like that. You'll always hear me do that. Uh, my, one of my first days in, in grad school, professor walk in and she said, shoot yourself first. If you're writing a paper, make sure in your, you know, your weaknesses, you go in there and say, oh my gosh, this is where I had weaknesses. Yeah. Because it allows people to, they're disarmed. Now all they want to do is help you solve those. And so I'm sure there's probably a great formal way and there's probably a lot of older traditional executives who say, no, don't go talk to people and acknowledge it. I think that's how you keep a good culture. You acknowledge, hey, we have this person Clearly, they were a go-getter. They were getting deals done. But at the end of the day, culturally, they weren't a fit. You know, and, and I, I do a lot of one-on-ones, maybe more than I should do sometimes. I don't like to step on our department head toes, but I, don't, I personally just like to hear input and, and let people hear it from my mouth why we made decisions. Yeah. So, uh, yes, now my recommendation would be to do that, both kind of formally across the, the company, whether it's a, you know, a whole company address, an email, whatever it is. 
but yes, I would, I would make sure to informally make the time to call up, uh, go see the, the people that, that you know are influential from a culture perspective uh, and have influence. And if you all are in the same office, go see them in their office, right? Don't bring them into your office. It's like getting called to the principal's office. <laughs> Whenever you have a meeting, That's good. always go to their office so that they're comfortable. Oh, I like that, man. I, I take that. I, I write that one down right now, man. That's, that's, that's something that I don't do to be honest with you. That's, that's disruptive actually. And that makes so much sense. What mm-hmm. a practical thing. Well, it's like, it's like, if your boss, if your boss says on a Friday, we need to talk Monday. Oh, it oh just my sounds gosh, like bad. Are you all weekend, <laughs> right? <laughs> totally. It could be something innocuous that they just wanted to spitball ideas with you. I'm guilty. Look, I'm guilty of that. And that's I've how I know this because there's many times where I'm just simply reaching out and being like, oh, I want to brainstorm with you. Hey, let's talk first thing Monday. And they tell me all weekend. They're like, oh my gosh. I've I'm had employees so tell worried. me, I've had my team members say like, can you not do that for me? Or at least like give me like a brief that yeah. it's all positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, exactly. so I want to jump into a few other things. I want to talk about you've got some inter- interesting um, methods or ways that you've attracted your first investors and you've raised capital, right? Uh, you've got like kind of mm-hmm. billionaires or sports owners. I, I, I don't know all the details. Tell us a little bit about kind of who's sitting at your table and uh, how, what that's like having such, you know, uh, influential leaders and people that want to be a part of what you're doing. Yeah. We have an amazing group of investors, advisors, and, and board members that we've been able to assemble. And this is where, once again, you have success with one and you leverage it with the others. Um, our board right now, yeah, we've got Jeff Finnick, who who owns the Tampa Bay Lightning and, you know, arguably is probably one of the, the, the smartest investors, fund managers, you know, in, in the last several decades. Um you know, I met him because of our one of our other investors, Lee Arnold. And I met Lee Arnold because of another one of our investors, Mark Blumenthal. And so it's very much how you get clients in a snowball effect of all you got to do is close one and get them to make the introductions and, and be the sale to the next one, to the next one, to the next one. You kind of climb the ladder that way. We have gone about investors a very different way than a lot of tech companies. Most tech companies think, let's go to Sand Hill Road. Let's go raise some VC money. I think, look, that's great for other people. Uh, the way that I, my personality works, I like our team. I like the way we operate. I like proactively getting input and coaching from our investors so they don't need to look over my shoulder. And so we've really avoided that kind of traditional VC route just because of the, the way that they operate and the way that they uh, have oversight. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, once again, this is uh, the, the blessing of having really experienced people. We were out in San Francisco doing some finalist meetings um, during our Series B. And I was on a morning run with our CFO. And we're just there. And she looks at me and she says, I don't think we should do this deal. She says, you're, look, you're the CEO. You can make this call. She says, but if it were me, I wouldn't do this deal. She says, the way that we operate is working let's just raise from our existing cap table and keep things going the way they're going. Yes, that's not prestigious and you don't get the big, you know, San Francisco name, but she's like, it's working. And the only possible thing that could happen is the, you know, this group coming in is it will disrupt the culture, maybe for the better, maybe for the worse, but it definitely will change how things work. Hmm. And her advice meant a lot to me clearly because I took it and, you know, the series B ended up, Jeff, uh, you know, did the pretty much the entire thing. And 
and he's been a great partner and, and Lee and Mark and all those guys have been great partners. And then from our, our external, you know, board seat, we brought in a longtime advisor and mentor to me and Jim Phillip. And so we have surrounded ourselves with what I consider just an all-star team of super experienced, very, very smart, savvy business people who um, let, you know, us run it the way that we run it. And they're always there for input and coaching. That's Probably killer. they think I go to them too often because I, I send like weekly updates and I love just getting constant little input. That way there never has to be a big decision made because we've made a lot of little Ooh, decisions I like this. Along this is like, if for anyone listening right now, this is like gold. <laughs> Keep going though. I love your method on it. <laughs> well, you also yeah, highlight, I was, I, hi, highlight your relational approach because that's kind of what I'm hearing you say. Your way of raising money isn't send, you know, your, your application to the, the 500 or the hundred top, you know, oh, no, no, yeah. No, no. T- t- talk to us about that. You know, and once again, everyone's personalities have different strengths and weaknesses. I happen to know the way that my personality works. I'm not someone who is once again, gonna be hands off and let me hire an investment banker to go raise for me. Look, I want to be the one there. Jim, Philip, who's on our board, told me a long time ago, he said, no one can pitch PeerFit better than you. You're the founder, you're the CEO, right? That's like good. Y- you should be the one pitching. And so I've always taken that to heart. I've always been the one who raises the capital. And I really don't believe in negotiating in the sense of we're sitting on opposite sides of the table because someone wins and someone loses. The way that I always look at it is to come in there and say, I want us both to win. You tell me the things that are absolutely important to you. I'll tell you the things that are absolutely important to me. And let's find the structure that allows both to occur, because at the end of this, we're married and we can't come out of the negotiation in a contentious way. We're going to be partners. So then why don't we start our first act as partners as this negotiation, putting together the term sheet? You know, so a, a lot of kind of traditional people have never enjoyed the way that I do things. But <laughs> frankly, in my mind, it's worked right here. We are rock and rolling we have a a board that i think a lot of people would be envious of and we've been able to raise capital in a way that most companies can't do so our style works for us which is be partners with your investors be candid with them you know don't think of them as your parents that you're trying to hide stuff from i like that. think of them as you know your friend or your wise uncle who you go to constantly and can be honest and get advice And as long as you're always transparent, like I said, they don't have the need to look over your shoulder. Then they're there to just legitimately answer questions and and give wise input. That's good. I I mean, I really don't say it slightly. I mean, the stuff you're talking about right now, I I believe that it's not just cultural from a generational standpoint, as in us being younger younger individuals, but I think it's the evolution of where business is going. And business as a means mm-hmm. of service and, and, and how society serves each other, which I believe is also, you know, when we go into this post-economic or post-money economy where, you know, who knows what's going to happen years and years from now and how we operate and there, whether there's a universal income, how our society is going to operate, it's just higher levels of authenticity, transparency, uh, and, and let alone doing that with investors. I mean, I think you've made your life uh, better because it's just who you are. I think if you're dealing with some VC firm, it would be 
you just wouldn't be getting the fulfillment probably out of feeling managed and as if you have kind of big brother over your shoulder telling you how to how to run your company. I can assure you that life would not be fulfilling for me if that was the situation I was in. <laughs> I know my personality well enough to know that. Yeah, you you won based on your personality, which is what I love. Like it, you you've built it around uh, the values that have have then attracted the team. I mean, it's very, very much uh, the, the whole, your whole culture, your whole experience has been in par with, with the expectations and because you never compromise your values. So it's pretty, pretty cool to see that. I, I want to know, I'm really curious about two things. We've got a, a little bit more time here. Uh, dealing in the health industry, there's got to be like, uh, it's got to be interesting, right? Because you've got these Fortune 50 groups you were telling me about, the big players. I mean, big behemoth, monster players you ever feel like you're the small fly in the room does that does that hurt when you feel like it's hard to leverage or do you feel like you still kind of have that yeah tell us about that well with with the uh, mergers and acquisitions right now they're all like fortune fives right i mean they went <laughs> from you know 10 10 fortune 50s and now you know you've got a handful of fortune fives is what it feels like with uh you know, the acquisitions, I look at like CVS and Aetna, you get two Fortune 10s merging together and the combined entity will hop up from spot five to, you know, spot number two on, right. on the Fortune 10. So, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, in the beginning, it would be easy to walk in and think, oh, I'm just so lucky to be in this room. Okay, so if you go in thinking that way, then you're not doing, you know, a service to you or your team. That's what I was You've got to be convicted. You've got to be convicted that, yeah, this group does what they do, but we do what we do really well. We are the expert in this one niche, and they need us, and we're the best, and I'm the best subject matter expert to speak to them on it. And if you truly think your service is valuable and you're talking to the right client who needs you – you should walk in like, hey, you're welcome that I'm here. Right. right. I am here to help you solve a problem. And once again, you've got to have a, you know, a product or service that solves a problem. But uh, it's just, you know, going back to my personality, it's not in my nature to ever walk in a room and feel intimidated. So luckily, I think that's passed on through our team, which is we know the value of what we have that's and it, what we bring. Value. And yeah. it, it's almost it's almost the opposite in the sense of we look at these fortune fifties and are like, gosh, you guys are, you move slow, you're painful. <laughs> and they're generally envious of us. I can see that what we can do and how quickly we can do it. Well, that's so I've got a few friends, right. That are running startups. And, and one of the gentlemen said, you know, I could start a company and make it nine figures pretty quick because I am working with all the fortune 10 and 100 companies in these industries and they just can't create the solutions fast enough because the bureaucracy doesn't allow them to have speed. And so I, I love what you're yeah. saying though. Cause I was just curious cause healthcare may be different than some of the tech companies, but you're still getting that leverage and advantage of saying, Hey, we have a service that you guys, uh, that you need. And so that, I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. So these are big organizations. I mean, big healthcare, you know, health insurance companies have tens of thousands of employees, 40,000, 50,000, 100,000 employees, depending on which group you're talking about. And really, I, I would say if there's a, a difference inside of healthcare, it's they're very, very particular about security and privacy, obviously with HIPAA and, yep. and you know, so on. Even if you're not touching it, they're very, very particular about it. And there's just generally a lot of yeses you've got to get. Um, you just, and then that's probably in any big company, but in healthcare, it feels like no one talks to each other. You know, 
the product and sales teams and marketing teams are all in just different worlds. So it's a little bit of its own politics. Buy in from a lot of them. It's a little Mm, bit of its own. Right. So tell us, because we've got a little bit more time. I've got two more questions for you. This is one of them. Like, tell me about the politics, because you're dealing, you're you're a relational person. You're dealing with partners. You're dealing with investors, employees. uh, Then you're dealing with the the industry politics. How do you maneuver around that? (laughs) Uh, So Todd Potter, who's our chief growth officer, came from that world. And it's funny, when we brought him onto the team, one of the insurance people we had been talking to said, oh, thank goodness, Todd, that you're on the team. It's not that I didn't like Ed or I didn't like Pierfit, but they just didn't speak my language or understand what I have to go through to get things approved. <laughs> so, you know, what we did was we were fortunate enough to find someone who knew that world, but hasn't been jaded by it in the sense of, they are risk averse and they have to follow policy. That's well So that's what we're always on the lookout for is people that share our ability to hustle, but know that world inside and out so that they can navigate it. And that's, oh, that's what we've cool. been able to fill our ranks with in the last probably 20 hires. As we've gotten bigger, we've gotten some traction. We've been able to go out and find people that come from that world and are desperately looking for meaning, purpose, and speed again in their lives. No, that's, that's so well said. I, I totally connect with what you're saying and you, you paint the picture perfect, Ed. So you know, on the podcast, this is my kind of ending question for you. Um, if you could go back to middle school or high school and you could talk to yourself, uh, what would you mention about success in life and kind of what would you tell yourself? You know, these are always interesting questions, so <laughs> touche, sir. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I would give myself a lot of advice, frankly, because I'm not sure that young Ed would listen to it <laughs> at the time. Um, I always like to figure things out on my own. So the best advice I would be able to give myself is trust yourself, continue to seek out coaching, listen. And other than that, the rest you kind of have to figure out along the way. You know, right. the rest the rest you got to figure out. But but if, you, if you're always true to yourself and you do what makes you happy, you do what you're passionate about, you know, that might change from time to time, but you're willing to get input, coaching, criticism, and, and you're able to, you know, take it the way it's supposed to be taken, you're always going to land on your feet. And, and if we'd played this game 100 times over, you know, maybe the other 90% of the time I don't end up exactly doing this. But if you have those core, uh, I guess, traits, you're going to end up in a really positive place where your definition of success is achieved. And it's different for every single person, but success ultimately means happiness. It doesn't mean a big job or you're very famous or you're very rich. It is that you are happy with the decisions you've made and the people that are around you. Man, what a home run for the art of success. I mean, that's literally to me, you know, helping people personally defined success for themselves. And I think you hit it. It's happiness. And so, uh, Ed, thanks for taking time with us. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts. And uh, I look forward to re-listening to this and learning from you again, man. Appreciate you. Well, thank you for having uh, you know myself and letting us talk about PeerFit and the journey to get here. So thank you. I hope you're more successful in life because of this episode from The Art of Success. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe for the future updates on other episodes released. Also, if you've enjoyed what you heard today, share The Art of Success with a friend, colleague, or family member. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.